It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today we'll be speaking with the proud daughter of a World War II D-Day veteran, U.S. Olympic star, and much-loved gymnastic coach who brought West Virginia University to national prominence in that sport. His name was William Bill Bonsall, and his daughter, Barbara Wood, is with us today to share a really incredible story of a man whose life and achievements touched a lot of people. Not too long ago, I received an email from Barbara's publicist that reads this way. I'm working with author B.B. Wood, writer of The Violent Years, a nonfiction work that was carefully crafted from first-person narratives and recovered audio from her father, a World War II POW and Olympic athlete. These recovered audio tapes are historical gems that tell of William Bonsall's experience in World War II and his rise to athletic fame as an Olympic gymnast. I would love to connect you and Barbara about sharing the courageous and inspiring story of her father, William Bill Bonsall, on your podcast. Naturally, I said yes, please forward the book. I read it and found it to be a really heartwarming story of a soldier, father, and gifted athlete who, as a coach, left a positive mark on a lot of people and became known to many as the father of gymnastics at West Virginia University for decades. I was surprised to find, among other things, that 1984 gold medal winner Mary Lou Retton came up through Bill Bonsall's program. But I don't want to give up too much here. Here's Barbara Wood, author of The Violent Years, to tell it. Barbara, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful novel. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. I enjoyed writing it. Apparently, in 1983, I had asked him to record his life because I knew a little bit about it. Um, And in 1989, apparently, he actually sat down and recorded 14 tapes, eight of which cover the years 1940 to 1950 that he called the violent years, not because people were being hurt, but because of the tumultuous changes that were were occurring in his life, both good and bad during that time. But I didn't hear them then. Uh, He gave a copy to my brother and my sister. They did hear them. My mother didn't hear them, and I didn't. I was busy raising kids and and getting extra degrees and working and so on. 
until two years ago when my son accidentally discovered them in the back of a closet. But the technology by now was so old, you know, they were just the old, you know, tape reel uh, to cassettes. reel. Or cassette. Oh, not even that. <laughs> <That's> pretty, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, but he was able to transfer them to a digital file so that I could listen to them. And as soon as I heard them, I knew that I had to write the story. Because one, he addressed it to me. And two, he ends the, the uh, tapes by saying, uh, 1950, my daughter Barbara was born, so ending the violent years. I had to write the story. Now I had the skill sets to do it, where in 1989, I would not have had the skill sets. I was in science. I uh, had I got three degrees in, in science and education and uh, worked in the field for a long time until I retired in 2015, the same year that my father died. And the reason I had to, and I retired that year, and the reason was is that I contracted Parkinson's disease. And it was in my right hand. I could no longer write. You know, on the board, wow. yeah. notes, you know, and I, I had a lot of kids doing research and I had to write and I, I couldn't do it. And um, in the meantime, uh, I also found out accidentally that I, I could draw. I couldn't write, but I could draw, but with my left hand, not my right hand. The Parkinson's was in my right hand. And I had to immediately, while I was still teaching, switch over to my left hand. Uh, to so I could do things on the computer. I couldn't do my right hand because with the tremors, it would keep hitting the keys. And when they had uh, when the, when the um, touch screens came out, it was worse because anything I touched, did, 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 you know, and I don't get what I want. But at any rate, I started working with my left hand, mm -hmm. and very soon switched to being left-handed. And my uh, my neurologist says that what happened is when that happened, he thinks that my brain switched from science to arts. Because I started drawing, and then one day I had this idea for a story, not this one, another book, and I started writing. I wrote three regular novels, escape um, thriller novels, wow. so that then I had the, the skill sets to write you know, as, a, as an author, not as, well, I had published uh, journals and things of that sort earlier, but that was a very different kind of writing. So that when one door closed, another door opened for me, and I was very blessed to have that. That opportunity. When you first heard your dad's audio tapes, what kind of feelings did you have? Um, it was a very comfortable feeling. I it was not uncomfortable. I wasn't learning things that were totally unexpected, at least not at the time. The uh, the uh, change in emotions. It was more. I was curious. I was writing down. I was fascinated, listening to everything, but. It was giving the uh, having my mother listening to the tapes with me. It was during COVID, and she is now she's going to turn ninety eight next month. Congratulations! And so, and she's doing very well. But she was like everybody else, stuck in an assisted living place, mm -hmm. and couldn't get out. Was all alone. And I started sending her pieces of manuscripts under the under the uh, the secretary would. Uh, uh, write them up and then send them under her door because they were not allowed to have contact and she would read yeah. what I was writing but I was able to they were able they allowed me to see her for a while to show her to have her listen to these tapes and her reaction was quite remarkable <laughs> because oh. there were some sections where she just laughed at, at the story that he was telling because she remembered it mm -hmm. places where she was sad and places where she was angry 
And she said, that's not right. He's not telling it right. He wasn't even there. I was there. Here's what happened. And then I started finding a lot of places that were inconsistent, and I had to work those through. And then I found out in the middle of this uh, that he had letters. I didn't know that he had four. She saved at least 400 pages of letters that he wrote. He wrote all the time. He even wrote while he was on the boat, you know, about to land. He wrote while he was in prison. He wrote all the time and they were magnificent long love letters the kind of thing you don't see anymore today with you know with email and digital uh, chatting and texting and so on yeah, he must Just have had a pile i remember there's a there's a description in your book of when the germans said we've got to vacate this prison camp we're leaving now he had already sewn a sort of a backpack that he yes. needed to carry all these all these uh, volumes of letters that he'd been writing so it allowed him to get out of there with a lot of his diary and memories intact. Right, and he also had drawings. He was a fabulous artist. And um, he drew, drew caricatures of the guards and of the mm. prisoners and of activities. He did sketches of them playing baseball or whatever was going on in the camp. And that that that, that was lost is a shame because all those people would have the characters he was a he drew very very well and he used those drawings to trade for goods in the prisoner of war camp with the yes. germans he would do a guard and then they would bring him coffee for instance and then he could trade that within the and that's one of the reasons that he stayed alive he was he was very smart when it came to a lot of the things he did that made his existence a little better than it certainly would have been otherwise one was being able to uh, find a market, a trading market with the guards for his art and the things that he created, even the ideas uh, that he had come up with. Was was any of that maybe because of his upbringing during the Depression when you pretty much have to do for yourself and think for yourself, and if you're going to survive, you've got to be creative? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that he talks about that was very actually happened a lot there was the inventiveness that people had and yeah. when he grew up uh, his whole family was very creative and inventive and they were not well off at all and they would um, they would design and create all kinds of things uh, and they they made models and they did electrical things and they they put their own wiring in their house when electricity finally came to Philadelphia <laughs> uh, they put their own uh, electrical systems in and, and plumbing and, and so on. So when he got to the camp, one of the things that he talked about was that he says he inv- invented the first automatic toaster for the prisoners of war, where he was putting, he was getting the, the, the bread, which is about all they had, and he would put a little water on it and stick it to a pot-bellied stove, and when it toasted, it would fall off, and then he'd do the other side, and that took on very quickly throughout all of the camps. There were a lot of those uh, kind of um, innovative technologies that were developed in the prisoner of war camps, and I have some sections on that. Yeah, a lot of your descriptions of basically what Barbara does and what what makes the book so enjoyable was that one chapter would describe, uh, as you start with your dad when he was young, let's say age five, six, and then that would describe exactly what their life was like and what it was like growing up uh, with very little. They didn't have a whole yes. lot uh, at right. all. So they had to be creative about what they did. There wasn't always a meal either available. Uh, and then no. the, the next chapter no. would show um, Dad as he was older and going to the recruitment office 
signing up for World War II and, and then getting shipped over to France. So you'd hear one chapter that goes back to the 30s, say 1931, 32, 33, and then the next chapter would be 1944, there we are. It, it, was, it was quite interesting to see that comparison. Right, and the, what I was doing, I was having two storylines going at the same time. One was his first person account, actually transcribed from his tapes. And so those are going along, starting with him when he landed at Normandy and working his way through during the first chapter when he comes home. And then the alternate chapters are third person about his home life, as you were describing. I wanted to put, I had to put those in there because as he's talking, he's referring to people and events that the reader won't know who they are because he's talking to me on the tapes. So I had to give that background information. I used the other tapes and my mother and the letters to fill in his story, his life story, so that you, the reader would then know who these people are, and also appreciate how little things that he was doing turned out to save his life, such as the athleticism that he had, uh, you know, pretending to uh, cops and robbers, either in the movie theater or in his neighborhood, or he's falling down steps and tumbling, and later on in life, that's how he, he, he saved himself when he got in a really, uh, uh, a really bad situation. He was a small guy at one point, and I believe it was World War II. He's described as being 130 pounds, and that was before he yes. went into the prison camp. Yes. So. Yeah, he was a little guy, only a little bit taller than I am, and that's actually helped him quite a bit when he got to the gymnastics because the, the bigger you are, the more muscle you have to make in order to move your body through and more in proportionate. It, it gets out of proportion. But being small, he didn't need as much muscle. And so he was able to whip himself around quite a lot. It's still, I found remarkable, it's still remarkable that he's able to hold an iron cross. And he, this, he's a, he was a medal winner uh, in the Olympics. He was, he was. He and to hold an iron cross, you've got to have extremely well-muscled shoulders. And in this case, he's on the flying ring, so he's doing the iron cross while he is swinging through the air. Yeah. He's swinging back and forth. And like I said, he had the gold medal, the, you know, the, at the national level. He was the national champion on the flying rings. Very strong. I'm going to read a section of your writing from Chapter 5 called The Wild West, Summer of 1944. He speaks, I mentioned a little bit early about the BAR, the Browning Automatic Rifle. Unfortunately, I didn't learn as much about it as I should have. For some reason, I have no idea why, I was carrying a BAR. I was moving along a hedgerow area by myself, and I have a feeling that, at that time, I might have been assigned as a scout, and maybe that's why I was carrying a BAR. But I came around the corner of the hedgerow, and, oh, maybe 50 or 60 feet away, not very far, I came face to face with my first German. I wasn't, I'm sure, his first American, but, nevertheless, at that instant, a face-to-face -face confrontation was a little bit like the old Wild West. Who could draw the fastest? My BAR came up, his arm came up, he had a rifle, and I fired first. Now the thing about it was, when I fired the BAR, because it's an automatic rifle, there was a series of shots coming off. Bing! 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 The gun, by recoil, tends to climb upwards, and so, in actuality, although I thought I may have been aiming at him, I was probably shooting well over his head. The result was, because I started firing first, he turned around and ran. 
My bullets, of course, weren't going anywhere near him, so I didn't hit him. But nevertheless, the fact that I fired first and scared him off was enough, of course, to take care of that particular confrontation. Well, it's interesting the way he writes that. And, and a lot of the times, he's trying to recall his memory as to why was he a scout? Why was he carrying a BAR? And it must have been the, the fog of war, everything happening at once all around him. And he was, he was trained to do one thing, but then assigned to do different things, for which he was not trained. And I would imagine it was the same with a lot of these guys. Right. A lot of people have, have uh, a lot of people have been able to enjoy this story. What have been some of their favorite parts? Oh, well, my mother's favorite was very clear. It's a chapter called The Jeep. And it was while they were at Penn State. They were married at that time, and they were living in an apartment. And they had a Jeep that my uh, uh, grandfather had given my father to, for use while he was at the university because he was uh, the head cheerleader for Penn State University while he was there. And they had an apartment one year, and it was his habit to drive up this uh, alley, alleyway and park right outside and then run in and get lunch or whatever, then go back and jump in the car, back out the alleyway and go with doing whatever. But while he was in there one time, somebody came in and parked behind him, and they had a trailer attached so so that the trailer is, is um, my father's uh, Jeep would uh, was on one side and the guy's car and then the trailer was in between and when my father came out he was so used to doing this that he never even looked. He jumped in the Jeep and threw it into reverse and just rammed right into that trailer which then ran right into the, to the car and he was so upset because he was in a hurry and he doesn't like to do things like that so what he did is he, he, he was in a hurry, he, he went over and uh, realized that the, the tire uh, on the guy's uh, trailer was what was messed up so he took that off he actually uh, removed it threw it in the back of the jeep and I, I, my mother said apparently at some point he had gone and gotten the, the repairs done came back replaced everything <laughs> and then and then drove off and then drove off again but when my mother came back there was no uh, when she by the evening when he came back again and later in the day the car was gone so they thought, well, we had a great day today. Let's go to the movies, which is another fun thing that the story's about them going to the movies. So they, they saved up their pennies. They went through the little bit of money that they had because she was a waitress and he was washing dishes, got their money together. And they said, let's go to the movies. So they jumped. They ran out to the Jeep, jumped in the Jeep. He threw it in reverse and bam, the guy had put the, the trailer there again. And um, the guy had moved back in again, and my father again backed in and damaged it in precisely the same way. Oh. And my mother, my father never makes mistakes like that. He never does. But here he, he had done it. He didn't say a word, but it was like, Ur! and she just laughed and laughed and laughed. And when I, whenever she tells a story now, it will just make her laugh again. She loves, loves that story. We're talking today with Barbara Wood and her book, The Violent Years, and we'll be back right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our interview with Barbara Wood, The Violent Years. One of my favorite chapters in the book was called Escapades, and that was kind of during the years when he was trying to find himself as a young man. Could you kind of give us a little story there? Well, one of the things he, he used to do is he and his friends had cap guns. They were just little, little pistol plastic things, but you put this little thing in and it made a popping sound. 
and they would go running all over the neighborhood and and uh, bang bang you're dead i got you and that kind of thing and when they did this when i say they ran all over the neighborhood i mean all over the neighborhood they would run across people's porches they would run through people's houses that they didn't know <laughs> and they, i mean they were, they were everywhere <laughs> yeah you, <laughs> that's not gonna that's not gonna go over well today but at one point he was running across a rooftop and up there they had what's called an aerial, which is a wire that's on really tall poles. And he ran into that, and that whole apparatus came tumbling down, falling in between the, the houses. He lived in a, in a poorer section of town that had, there were all row houses. And eventually that section, that was Sansom Street in Philadelphia, eventually that area became, became a slum. But at any rate, he was um, running across the top, knocked this thing down, and of course, it was breaking windows as it went down, and a lot of clatter. And so, the, all everybody scattered. His friends left, and he thought, "Well, I'll just play it real cool." And he just, "I'll stay away for a while." And he walks around the block, and kind of gathers himself, and then he starts to walk back to his uh, to his house. And when he gets there, there's a whole crowd of people out front, and the, there's a, a police car sitting out there. And as soon as he walks up, everybody turns around and points at my father and says. There he is. That's the guy that did it. And he was like, oh, no. Well, his family wasn't there, but everybody else was. And so they, they threw him in the, the police threw him in the back of the car and drove him around and admonished him on the dangers uh, to body and, and property for doing something like this. And then brought him back to the house and dropped him off. And of course, he was just, he was terrified for the whole, the whole time this was going on. I think he was 12, maybe, that age, I guess. But anyway, so he waited for his father to come home. His father was strict, and he always threatened bodily harm, but he never did. He never he never hit the kids, ever. And uh, the father uh, came in and never said a word to him. But he got his older brother, and they got materials, and they went out, and they repaired this, this uh, piece of equipment, had to pay for it. In the Depression, that was a lot of time and expense, and my father was mortified. That his that he had caused this kind of a problem. He had caused a problem for somebody else, yeah. and he never did that again. He started to get out of his hoodlum years. <laughs> I'm going to jump to to France. All right, D-Day plus two. Can you kind of explain okay. what happened from the time he arrived there until I believe it was November when he was captured? Well, he he. One of the things he doesn't really talk about actual battles per se. He's his descriptions are more. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's generally what I'm seeing. Yes. And one of the things he describes, he, he does two things. He's always a he's frequently a cog in the machine. This big mammoth slow moving machine, and he's just walking in front of the guy, you know, in back of the guy that's in front of him, and. And at one point, the guy in front of him is killed. He's uh, somebody shoots him in the head. Well, you, he assume you assume that he died, and his reaction to to realize that here's a guy and it, it just happened right in front of him like that, struck him really hard. But there was nothing he could do but pick himself up and walk, keep moving along. He also talks about um, being hungry and um, missing a meal, and then having to run over and. And, and pick you know potatoes out of a field, grab them, and get jump back in the line, or falling asleep. He was so exhausted at one point 
that he was he was feeding uh, the the uh, bullets into the the big machine the uh, machine gun, and he fell asleep doing that. And, and he realizes now, how can anybody do that? But indeed, he was so tired that that's what happened. Yeah, that's a great example. Of yeah, he talks about no birds. This he talked about sounds and smells and those kinds of things, but not the actual battles. He doesn't describe that. Yeah, well, I found it interesting because it was a very human perspective. You know, he's given his pure memory. Yes. He's, he's not he's not trying to throw in any research that he wasn't familiar with at the time, which he might have picked up later. He was just telling you exactly what his feelings were at the time. Yeah, and he frequently said, why why not me? You know, he was standing in a line of th three guys in front of him. The bullet came, came in and hit the one guy through the hip, hit the next guy through the leg, and the third guy through the ankle. And they're all down, and he wasn't touched. Yeah. Why not me? He couldn't. He couldn't figure that out. And another thing was is that the, that what upset him or scared him the most were the flamethrowers. I don't know whether I emphasized that enough, but growing up, I was aware that that was something that terrified him at the time. When he was captured by the Germans, uh, just before he was captured, he had uh, he had acquired a German Luger that he had found. And he was smart enough to, um, they knew they were surrounded. They had no way of getting out of this net that was closing in on them as they were hiding in this patch of woods. And he and his buddy, who was the radio man, uh, took everything they had on them, their weapons, the radio, and just literally tore it to pieces and scattered it. So that when they were caught, which they knew they would be, they weren't offering any resistance to the Germans. They had no weapons on them. Uh, Correct. And that probably saved his life right there. Plus the fact that he, again, he was a quick mind, and he had picked up some German. Correct. That was, a, that was critical. One other guy was saying, why are you doing this? Because we're all going to die anyway. And he, that was not his attitude. His attitude was maybe there's a little something that I can do. And there were actually several somethings that he could do. And that was one. Not being, having blonde hair and blue eyes wasn't hurting him either. Because that would yeah. stop the guy. He'd start to shoot and go, whoa, whoa, who is this guy? What, you can say some German. And that, that hesitation on their part saved his life. Now, they were, they were assigned to a prison camp. And in the prison camp, he used his resourcefulness to survive and to help the other guys survive. Everything from small things like using the side of the wood stove as a toaster <laughs> and, then yeah. have, and then having the finished pieces drop into a collection bin. I thought that was... Uh, kind of neat but uh, also being able to speak a little bit of the German also the artwork that he did the creative stuff that he was able to provide and trade with the guards um, for things that made their life a little bit easier in there I thought all that was excellent resourcefulness that helped to keep him alive and maybe give him that little extra spark of energy knowing that someday they're going to get out of this yeah, very much so. And he always said, it never occurred to me that I'd be captured. He always thought you go to war, you either come back a hero or you come back or you're dead. Yeah. And and he was shocked that he was captured. That that wasn't an option that he had considered and he didn't quite know what to do about it. And was working through that when he came back was one of the, the his concerns. Recall, if you will, uh, on his behalf, what it was like uh, coming back to the States and how long it took him to adjust. And, and meeting a gene again. Well, that actually was the biggest mystery of the entire process of writing the book because all I had was his tape saying, I came back and 
he couldn't get into Penn State for a while there. And he, the way he put it is, for the next several months, I can't remember what I did. I don't know what I did during that time. Yeah. So I turned to my mother, who's listening to this, and I said, so what was he doing? And she said, what? I thought he was at Penn State all that time. <laughs> I said, well, he clearly, what it says on the tape, he was not at Penn State. She says, well, where was he? And I said, well, listen, on the tape, it says he was staying at his sister's house, which was a few blocks from your house. She said, I was going to Temple at the time for, for months. I didn't see him for months. I thought he was gone. What was he? And she was now getting angry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is one of those yeah. angry points. What was, it, what was he doing? And it, it, um, and so I asked her, well, well, what were you doing? What When he came back, what was his first Christmas back like? Because she that was in September through uh, pretty much February, that, that semester is when they were not communicating. And she said, I don't remember. What do you... You don't remember what his first, well, what about your first birthday back before he wrote poetry all the time? I don't remember. Well, what about this? I don't remember. And I and the, they both had collective amnesia for about, you know, eight months there and was driving me nuts. And I finally got to a point where she describes the, the where he describes the trip to, Mar to Mardi Gras. And as soon as that hit, she was angry and yeah. I mean not just a little frustrated she is really angry about this and I asked her well what's the problem and she said he went with somebody and he didn't ask me and I said well well what do you why why would you you know what was the problem here and he said she said I was so angry I gave him back the ring and I said what ring and this devolved into a series of questions where I realized that nobody else in the family knew that they were actually engaged twice. Once when he first came back, there was a ring that was given back. No one in our family knew any of this stuff. It's all in the book. But the people of my family reading this section were shocked because they had no idea that any of this occurred. And it turned out that, uh, that Paul Keebler, who was his high school gymnastics coach, was integral into his reassimilating back into society because he was a Navy man and he understood the problem but my father didn't understand what was wrong he he was having guilt for having survived with no injuries right and, and my mother certainly didn't know what was going on they didn't have psychologists back then to help and he wouldn't talk to his uh, the coach because he was a Navy man and he respected him and, and he felt like he hadn't done anything because he had sat out the war in a prisoner of war camp right but but uh paul keebler was the one his coach that set up the trip for him to go to mardi gras and on that trip with another guy he learns that he actually did do a lot he was shot and shot at and did what everybody else did and he came back ready to go and jump right into training for the olympics as soon as he got back from that trip just it was just that few months that just drove your mom crazy Right, and he didn't write for eight months. It's the only eight months of his life that he didn't write anything. But I, I can see the, the way the way that you've explained it. You know, he probably a lot of guys came back with a whole lot of mixed feelings. And I, I know in the interviews I've done, they say, you know, I'm not a hero. Most of the guys who came back don't feel like they're heroes. It's the guys who didn't make that's, it that are that's the heroes. Correct. You know, we right. we live by luck or assignment or just pure chance. Uh, and sometimes, right. you know, maybe some heads up, but you never know which bullet is meant for you. Exactly. And he felt that very strongly. 
Tell me about how he made the transition to West Virginia University and what he accomplished there. When, um, when he graduated from Penn State, he had two job offers. One was from Yale and the other was from West Virginia. He didn't want to go to Yale because it was just teaching. He would not be able to coach. And so he chose to go to West Virginia, which did offer him a coaching position. And he got that through friends and connections and so on. And of course, my mother was very upset because she wanted to go to Yale. Huh. Now, what's, this, what's this Morgantown, West Virginia thing? And his description of having getting there was, and so we arrived in Morgantown. And my mother's description is a, an entire chapter of all the things that happened to them that first day. But um, he, when he got there, part of the problem would be if he was going to coach, he needed to have people that wanted to be on a t team. And, and no one in West Virginia knew what gymnastics was. They didn't right. even know what the word meant. And so he realized he had to build a base. And what he did is he went, um, he got a friend of his, George Nissan, who uh, made trampolines. It's, the, it's a big corporation now. And they went around with a couple of uh, guys that he had uh, talked into coming with them to every high school in the state over time. And he would go to basketball games and at, at intermission, he would do, they would do a little gymnastics uh demonstration and it got to the point where after a while people began to the, the high school said hey we got some people that are interested in doing this you got any uh, gymnasts up there that would like to teach at our high school after they graduate and he began sending people down and he also set up competitions throughout the state for uh, students between uh, elementary middle school all the way through high school so that they uh, would get used to competing and my brother was one of the people that when he was in high school went through these competitions and while he was at one of the competitions he saw this young girl uh, across the way who just stood out she just stood out she was just sparkled when she would compete he, she, he said she was probably nine or ten and her name was Mary Lou Retton oh no kidding yeah right because remember she was from West Virginia yeah. she came she came up through my father's program. That was one of the things that he did. And then he also, um, because he believed that gymnastics particularly, but sports generally, were important for people because, especially gymnastics, you, if you just learn even one little trick, a forward roll, that gives you competence. You, you, know, you don't have, have to be a, an Olympic medalist or you know, some big winner to feel good. Anybody can feel good with just learning a few things. And so he also worked with um, uh, the uh, Eunice um, Shriver, you know, mm -hmm. Kennedy yep. Shriver, to start the Special Olympics uh, in West Virginia. So he was in instrumental in setting that program up as well. And in, uh, in my town, he started, they didn't have a lot of sports in Morgantown other than, you know, the football, basketball kinds of things. So he started when I was little with just a few of us learning Saturday mornings we would come in and he, they would teach us forward rolls backward rolls cartwheels and that kind of thing by the time I was in high school there were 300 kids wow. from all over the town that regularly participated in this winter program and the entire university uh, the uh, PE department was involved in, and not just the base was gymnastics but they had golf and they had uh, handball and they had all kinds of sports that's where I first picked some of those things up and uh, we had to do exercises and everything out in the, in the morning and so on. 
It was a major program. And so it was such a shame. And he had many good years with his team where he had a lot, a lot of winning seasons and uh, uh, people that went on uh, uh, in gymnastics. And he always kept in touch with uh, his two coaches, Paul Keebler at Bartram High School in Philadelphia and Gene Whetstone, who was the uh, gymnastics uh, coach at Penn State University. And they remained friends for life. And Gene Whetstone lived to be 100. Wow. So, um, and when he left, they um, were taking away uh, the minor sports for men because they had to have Title IX had come in for women. That was one of the things which my father supported. Um, but uh, that meant that other things were having to go away. And they, when he retired, they didn't, they never hired another gymnastics coach. And he was a gymnastics coach longer than at that point, than all of the other coaches combined the years wow. that they had hmm. the, you know, the basketball, the football, and you know, all the, all the coaches. So I think it's proper to call him the father of gymnastics at West Virginia university. Right. I hadn't actually thought of that before, but when you said that, I kind of, I was smiling because um, I, I actually think that that's rather fitting for him. Were you yourself good in gymnastics? Um, my parents never pushed us to do that. I enjoyed some things. I, I really enjoyed, I mean, we could do, you know, backflips, you know, all the usual stuff. Um, my my last trick was at college, you know, I liked the trampoline and I was trying to do some special things there. Uh, not just somersaults on the trampoline forward and backward, but I was trying to do twists in the air where we twist around upside down. I'd go upside down and then spin all the way around, mm -hmm. do those kinds of things. But for me, it was fun. And they were concerned because it, gymnastics is actually a very dangerous sport. And for yes. women, it was particularly so because at the time they didn't know that some of the uh, moves that they were making were actually injuring the women. Yeah, they were pushing it, real hard to to make new moves and do what the men could do, and they were getting a lot of heel fractures, right? That and a uh, hip. That they were hip. Um, on the uneven bars. They would swing from the high bar and wrap their legs around, wrap their uh, torso around the bottom one, flip around, and hitting there was causing them problems for the reproductive system. You know, oh, because okay. of yep. the pressure. And so they were not, they never pushed us and they never pushed my brother either, but my brother wanted to do gymnastics and he could not, um, he, he got a scholarship to um, uh, Georgia Tech as a, he was in architecture there and then transferred to Tennessee, but he was on the teams there uh, for gymnastics, but he could never be as good as my father because he was very tall. My brother's over six feet tall. He looks yeah. exactly like my father but really tall and it made every trick much harder for yes. him and he was um at one point he said to my father I, I can't be as good as you you were I'm never going to be able to live up to you and he said but you are an eagle scout I could never be an eagle scout and that's equal to going to the olympics my brother, brother said he never minded after that he felt good about himself after that time your dad was a natural coach was he was he uh, good to the you kids growing up, or was he busy doing other things? How did that work out? Was it? Was oh no 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 no. He he was he was a um, he was a family guy. As a matter of fact, one of the things, one of his regrets. This is not in the book, but one of his regrets, I think, and my my brother thinks as well, was that in 1950 
he went to the 48 Olympics in the 1950 is when he came to Morgantown. He would have liked to have gone to the 1952 Olympics, mm -hmm. but he thought that since he was working, employed as a coach, that he would not be allowed to do that. What he didn't know was that the rules had changed enough that they would have allowed him to go, but he was not practicing, he was not, he was not you know, working out for an Olympic level uh, position, but he thinks that he would have done much, much better. And he, he did okay, didn't, didn't win any medals, but I'm pretty sure if he thinks that he would have gotten even better, then, then I, that he probably would have done very well. Well, that would have required some pretty intense training. And also, you were two years old at home, and he had a family right. to raise and a job to keep. So right. I think but, memories yeah, so of the past was, tend to slip by. Right. And, of course, by the 56, it was then much too long. The family would have supported him, and the, the university, I know, would have supported him. It might have been a little hard. Um, but it was very short in comparison to the amount of t time you you know we had growing up. Yeah. And and you have to make those choices sometimes along the way too. But he would have, I think, liked to have at least given it a shot for a short period of time. And he was a great he was a great dad. And both my parents, we all three of us felt that we won the parent lottery um, because our parents um, were very supportive in a lot of different ways for us. Barbara, could you kind of synthesize the wrap up of the book for us? We'd appreciate it. The, uh, the tapes for my father ended in 1950 with my birth. And I felt that leaving the book there would be uh, very unsatisfying to a reader because that was 1950. He lived till 2015. We're talking another 65 years of living. What happened to him? And so I decided to add an epilogue of the night, the night that he died. And that's, that's, that scene is actually described as what was happening at the, at the time. And I wanted to do that as a vehicle to, to let the reader know what happened to him because what my mother had done, he was in a um, nursing home and uh, he was, uh, it was his last night and we all knew that. We, we were all waiting around the bed um, as he was taking his last breaths. And in the room, my mother had put up pictures of him, pictures of his awards, uh, his, medal, uh, his uh, medals, uh, from the uh, war. She had put up um, his Hall of Fame uh, inductions. He was in um, six Hall of Fame, five at the time, and then he got another one just last last year. Um, all that was put up because she wanted the, the people there to, to know who he was. It wasn't just some old guy in a bed who was dying. They, she wanted them to know who this man was and to respect him the way that she did. And so my brother and I discuss what is on the walls as a way to let the reader know all the things that he had done in the meantime. And then the, the quiet way in which he passed. And one of the last thing that I did is I wanted the last words to mirror the very first words in the book. The very beginning of the book, he's woken up by his mother who kisses him on the brow and says it's time to it's time to wake up and at the end um, he wasn't he wasn't dying very quickly it was it was taking a while and my mother at one point said 
why is he still with us? She didn't understand. And then she said, uh, she came back in and she said, the nurse says that the soul has to leave. We have to open a window. And so she opens a window and that doesn't do anything. And finally, it's time for us to leave. And we were all saying our goodbyes. And I said, Mom, what I want you to do is I want you to kiss him on the brow. And I want you to say, it's time to come home now, my little lamb. Because that's what his mother always called him. And that mirrored him now going to sleep, mirrored the waking up in the first chapter. And of course, a few minutes later, he, he smiles when she says that. It was the last motion that he actually had. So we know he heard her. And then within a few minutes, he slipped away. And so he finally had gone home. Thank you, Barbara, for this very moving story and this wonderful interview. I feel honored to be able to have you share this with us. Thank you. Uh, Barbara Wood, The Violent Years. Is there anything more you'd thank like you. to say? I just want to thank you for having me on. I enjoyed very much talking with you about my father. Well, you're quite welcome. Where can people find the book, The Violent Years? Uh, it's sold on Amazon with my, my other books. But when you, to find it, you have to search in the book department only because if you type in B.B. Wood, which is my author name, and the violent years, it'll take you to B.B. Wood, will take you to Barbecue Wood, where you'll find grips <laughs> yeah. and charcoal. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> well, it's an excellent book. Uh, I've enjoyed it immensely. Thank you. It's a real family story. Uh, it's a, a young girl and then a grown woman's respect and love for her dad. Thank you. Thank you.